I think one of the main outcomes and the main thought that I like people to have after this talk was that Reactux didn't break our tests. Implementation details did. Reactux only showed us the way of, okay, we are not doing our tests the way we should be doing them. Hi, and welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast from LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it free at LogRocket.com. I'm Sean, and with me today is Danielle LaFonce, developer advocate at OLX, Egghead.io instructor, and Auth0 ambassador, here to talk about his talk from CityJS London, React Hooks, Broke My Tests, Now What? Welcome to the show, Danielle. Thanks. Really excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you on. And before we jump into the talk, do you mind just giving us a little bit about your background and your work at OLX? Yeah, sure. So um, I started as a full-stack developer a couple of years ago, then found out what I really love is front-end development. So I ended up jumping into front-end like three or four years ago. Throughout this process, I learned about something new, at least it was new for me, I guess, called the developer relations. And that made me want to jump into developer relations, more focused on developer advocacy. And yeah, luckily, one year ago, I got my first job doing this at OLX. So I'm OLX's first developer advocate. And, and it has been a, a fun experience, to be honest, getting able to help promote the work that we do, help work with our community and doing the job that is, well, it is my dream job, to be honest. So it's been an amazing experience. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm excited for you. It was a great talk. So clearly you were meant to do it. I'm curious, was it React that pulled you into the front end side of things? What made you do that transition? It was actually React. So it, around yeah four or five years ago, I was working at a project that my team was full stack and we had a front end task that we had to work on. Nobody else wanted to do it. So I kind of just volunteered. And throughout that process, I'm like, oh, this is React. Okay, this is cool. This is amazing. Because the last time that I'd done front-end development was with jQuery. And to be honest, my experience was not that good at the time. But it was pretty much because I didn't learn it properly, I think. And with React, I had seemingly a good transition. I were able. To, I was able to learn more easily, I guess, and a bunch of support for micro workers. And I really liked React, so that made me say, okay, this is definitely something that I want to continue investing in the, le- in the next couple of years. And I tried to find out opportunities to work mainly with React. And yeah, React ended up being my main thing a year after that, yeah. It does seem like the ecosystem for like development is way more mature with React and the new frameworks we have than back in the jQuery days. <laughs> So you talked about hooks in this talk. So before we get into the testing aspect, can we just back up for a sec? Could you explain like what are hooks and why developers should be using them? Yeah, definitely. So that's the fun thing about this talk is I promoted it and started from hooks perspective because this talk started like four years ago uh, in a project that I was working where we had to migrate from class components to hooks. So basically hooks were the new paradigm that React proposed. So we stopped having class components. We started having functional components. This kind of changed the way that we work with React. It changed the way that we did lifecycle. It changed the way that we handled state. So hooks integrated with the functional components and it made it more easy, to be honest. It made even learning React for a couple of people fairly easier than with class components because with class components, we had all those issues with state management, with event binding, dealing with this and everything. So <laughs> it, it was a, ended up being a bit tricky to learn. I'm not saying it's hard, but it had its nuances. 
we took this was easier. It was fairly simple. The teaching process was easier. So for me, it ended up being easier to not to get into because I was already working with with hook with cost components, but with the new coworkers that joined my team after a while, we knew that it would be easier to for having them onboarding in the React ecosystem. Yeah. In the beginning, it can be a little bit strange with hooks, just thinking in terms of functions returning functions. Like yeah. you use state, you have your state and your set state. So that's just a confusing paradigm to wrap your head around, at least for me in the beginning. But I think once you're thinking in terms of just the inputs and outputs of functions, it's easier to work in a larger code base. And a, a trickier thing as well, I, one of the things that I remember struggling a lot was the lifecycle functions. Because with class components, we were all, always thinking in life cycles. And then when use effect came out, I remember that I've seen this in, in every every version of teams that I worked at when they were adopting hooks, was that they were trying to turn use effects and build use effect custom hooks to deal with their life cycle. Say so they would have a use mount effect or a use whatever. So we always were trying to build the concepts that we learned in class components to hooks until we had to break that mindset we were struggling a lot with it. I found it that it was very easy for people that were learning React the first time with functions and with the functional components after hooks that they didn't have the lifecycle mental model inside of them. So they wouldn't struggle whilst people that were working with class components and stuff before it was a bit trickier for them. Yeah, I'm absolutely guilty of Googling how to implement componented mount with React hooks or, or something along those lines. I think actually, have you seen the new React documentation? They're starting fresh from the beginning with hooks. I think the previous docs were like, if you're coming from class components, here's how you use hooks. And now they're just doing that from the get-go, which like you said, your team members who were using hooks from the beginning weren't confused with those lifecycle methods. So I think that'll help a lot to have those new docs. Yeah, the new docs look amazing. I was just uh, skimming through them the last couple Last couple of weeks, so they were released like two or three weeks ago, I think. I was uh, the, the official because they have been in beta for so long, but I was looking through them and they were, were looking really, really great. Just on a note there, I just want to see a bit more testing focused documentation, but I've seen some tweets of people at, at saying that they are looking on to that. So I'm excited to see what's going up, show up next about that part. Yeah, we'll have to look out for that. And that's actually a good transition into what we talk about next, which was the testing aspect. And yeah, you mentioned that migrating to React folks was difficult because it breaks tests. Why is that an issue? Yeah. So for us, it was a fun experience and that's why I've been doing this talk and I'll keep doing it because it's funny because, okay, we were in class components, we migrated to hooks, everything was working exactly the same way, at least so we thought. The user was interacting with our page the exact same way, everything seemed to work the same way. We had a few less lines of code, the code was more readable, but yeah, someone <laughs> remembered that we should run the tests after the migration. Shame on us for not doing it throughout, but well, that's how we learn. And at the end, like more than half of our tests were failing. And that was the tricky part because we didn't know what we should do at that time. Like, okay, but everything works the same way. And this ended up being a super funny thing because at least made us rethink how we did testing. For instance, most of my team at the time came from a backend background. And the way we wanted to do tests was very focused on, for instance, specifically unit tests and stuff is, okay, we have to check this implementation and make sure that if we modify parameter, change an argument, do something if the output that we are expecting will return what we want. That was our mindset. The thing is, this was the process that we were using in class components. And then when hooks showed up and we did our migration, this didn't work anymore. And 
we were left a little bit wondering what was happening. And at the time, I remember finding a tweet from Cansidot about implementation details. And when we were in the implementation details and when we got to know what actual implementation details were, which are, implementation details are the things which the users of your code will not typically use, see, or even know about. So we put this in perspective and we ended up checking that our tests at the time were full of these things. For instance, our component state, the way that we created for stuff, accessing props. Like th this was all of our tests. We were deeply nested into implementation details. And these were the things that ended up making us rethink of how we were writing tests and trying to find a new process where these things didn't exist or that we could change our mindset and learn something new, basically. Got it. So even though the ways that users were interacting with your application didn't change when you moved to hooks, the tests fail because those little bits on the inside, how you're accessing state, the tests were dependent on them and that was causing them to fail, it sounds like? Exactly. So that was pretty much the main issue that we have. And that's the fun thing about the title of this talk, which I really like to do I, on the closing because I promoted as React Hooks broke my tests. But the fun thing was that React Hooks only opened our minds to what were the issues in our tests, which were implementation details. I think one of the main outcomes and the main thought that I like people to have after this talk was that React Hooks didn't break our tests. Implementation details did. React Hooks only showed us the way of, okay, we are not doing that our tests the way we should be doing them. Got it. Yeah. And we've had, I believe, have had Kenzie Dodds on the podcast before. He's written a lot of great blogs about testing. So that's a good rule of thumb about getting closer to what the user's doing versus the implementation details. There was something else that you mentioned that caused problems in the tests, and that was shallow rendering. So for our listeners who might not be familiar with that, do you mind explaining a bit what shallow rendering means? Shallow rendering is a way that some software testing uh, libraries offer you where you can only render the shallow part of your component. So what do I mean by this is imagine that you have a component that is rendering some children. For instance, imagine that we have a search box and when, once you click a button, it will sub-render a children that it has with more advanced details. When you shallow render that part, it will only render the main component and not render the component children. So by doing this, Following our previous mindset, okay, we are abstracting and we are black box testing this component. We are not having any extra stuff interfering with it, in this case, the component children. But the thing with shallow rendering and the reason why we stopped using it and had to move about it is, once again, it's not the way that the user interacts with your components. Because once the user accesses something and he clicks on it and he does whatever he wants to do, is accessing the component, is accessing the component children. And if you're abstracting that part in your tests, at least imagine that something in the children break that somehow will affect your main component. You won't be noticing that because you're only rendering the main component. And that's the thing with user-centric approach. When you bring this user-centric approach, you're always thinking, okay, how is the user interacting with this? How does the user see stuff? And in this case, shallow rendering is definitely not a way that a user interacts with your component. So we ended up trying to migrate for something where you can render the component in its entirety. Got it. So the same problem, the user testing for not for what the user is going to do when they interact with your application. And so the fix as you describe as a React testing library. So how does it solve these issues for us? So the testing library comes with a user-centric approach in mind. So that's the thing. And we were using Enzyme at the time. And 
don't get me wrong, Enzyme is great and I still recommend it a lot. But the thing is, you have to be careful when using Enzyme because it exposes a bunch of stuff that will have you testing implementation details if you're not aware or you're not focusing on a user-centric approach. So the testing library and with its main guideline of like the more your tests resemble the way your software is used, the more confidence they can give you. This is also a tweet by Ken Dots and ended up being like the main thing that inspired the testing library to be created. So for those of you we are not aware the testing library is a set of libraries created by Dots, which has on its basis another library called the DOM testing library and all the other ones. So React testing library, Angular, Svelte, pretty much everything else comes built upon that library. And yeah, it brings the user-centric approach to mind. The way it's built, the way you use it is always to make sure that you're focused in a user-centric perspective and avoid implementation details. That's one of the greatest things that we ended up finding because, okay, even if we tried, it was it made it specifically hard for you to test implementation details. There are some nuances there, but and there are things that you might focus on them, but it exposes implementation details in a controlled way in some scenarios, and you should avoid them at any cost, pretty much. Just a quick pause here to remind you that PodRocket is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket can help you understand exactly how users are experiencing your digital product with session replay, error tracking, product analytics, frustration indicators, performance monitoring, UX analytics, and more. Machine learning algorithms service the most impactful issues affecting your users, so you can spend your time building a better product rather than hunting through tools. Solve user-reported issues, find issues faster, and improve conversion and adoption with LogRocket. Got it. Okay, so I'm guessing that React testing library gets around this shallow rendering problem. But I imagine that in the test, you still have to interact with your components and find things that will render on the DOM and interact with them. So how does React testing library go about selecting things and interacting with them? Yeah, so that's one of the things that I really, really like about the testing library. It's the way that it allows you for query for stuff on the DOM. So previously, one of the things that we used was the find method that we had. I think it was an enzyme. And it allowed us to search for component names for whatever. And this made us tie in once again into implementation details. With the testing library, it makes it much, much better. Like first things first, it has three different types of variants. So you can query for stuff in synchronous ways and asynchronous ways, being like the asynchronous ways, the query and the get by variant and the asynchronous ways being defined by. So I'll try not to get into much many details here, but Usually you use the query by when you want to assert that something doesn't exist. So if you want to check if something is not on UI, use your get by variant when you want to check if something definitely exists. And you use the find by when you want to await for something that you know that will show up in your UI, but it's not quite there right now. And the thing that all these variants can be appended by what I like to call query families. And these families, first things first, and this is like the main selling point of this is it's accessibility first. So it promotes accessibility from the start. Why? Because all these query families, there are three of them and there's a fourth one, which is not uh, official, but they started from the first one, which is the query is accessible to everyone. They are the queries that fully represent the, the user experience of interacting with your components. So even if you are using assistive technology, these queries should fully match the, the experience of assistive technology users. So by starting with these queries in mind, just to give an example, when you're looking at queries in the testing library, these are the queries that like by label text, the placeholder text, by role, a display role and let me see by text exactly. So 
every every time you're using one of these queries, there'll be one to the queries accessible to everyone, family, and most often these are the things that will represent the accessibility. For instance, one of the great things about using this was when I started, this made me find out accessibility issues in our design system. Like the company I was working, we had our own design system, like many companies have. And by by always starting to focus on the queries accessible to everyone, I was always finding, oh, for some reason, like this label is not connected to the input. So there's some accessibility issues here. So there are a couple of things that I was always being able to open some tickets and report to our team like, hey, you're checking accessibility on these components. Perhaps you should try the React testing library here because it will help you. So yeah, that's one of the main things and one of the main reasons I like the way you can query for stuff. So yeah, it's always starting with the queries that are accessible to everyone, then going down on this tree. So there are the queries accessible to everyone. Then you have the semantic queries, which kind of represent accessibility, but they have some issues. So the queries in this part are the by title and the alt text. For instance, just so you're aware why they are not placed or you should not resort to them first is because, for instance, the title is not consistently read across screen readers. So you start seeing that there are some accessibility issues with the lower you go down on the query family tree. So always starting with the accessible to everyone can give you a boost and help you find some accessibility issues in your tests. Yeah, and that sounds like something that you don't necessarily get when you're testing by looking for implementation details, because you might test that a component works the way it is when it's implemented a certain way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has the accessibility attributes that those accessibility selectors look for. And then that so seems like a great way to verify that your components like actually end up on the page as like accessible, semantic, HTML. And it ends up giving you a bunch of extra confidence about the stuff you're testing and if out of the way they will end up being shipped to the user, which is one of the main things that we want here is to make sure that our user experience is the best thing ever. So by leveraging the testing library in the way that, especially with this part of the querying works, it makes sure that it represents it to the fullest. So are there times when obviously the first line of defense, it sounds like is the accessibility selectors, and then maybe after that, semantic HTML selectors, but are there times when it may be necessary to kind of drop down and do something more custom? And does React Testing Library give us those tools when we need them? Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of ways if for some reason the accessibility queries or the semantic queries don't work. That is a third part of the query family, which is the test ID queries. And this is why I said it ends up having a controlled way to do implementation details because test IDs is pretty much the data test ID attribute that you can add to your components. So this is pretty much added in your component stuff and you can query for that. And this is one of the ways that it's created. So if you have to have an implementation detail, it's it have it being only this one and try not to have a bunch of them. So I have a fun story about this because when we started and while we were not familiar with the accessibility ways of querying with the testing library, all of our tests were test ID attributes. Why? Well, the main thing was that at the time we had our QA team and our QA team liked to use these data test ID attributes to query for stuff in the end-to-end tests that they ended up building. And this made us like, okay, now we are going to have test IDs everywhere. And yeah, this worked well, but once again, then we were missing on a bunch of all the good things that the other queries had, like we were missing on a bunch of accessibility stuff. And it was an hard thing to do, like to try to evangelize all the team to, okay, now let's get out of the test IDs or let's only have test IDs specifically 
for the QA team and try to focus on the accessibility first. But yeah, once people start seeing the value of it, it kind of decreases. And continuing on implementation details, there's another thing that you can use, which are called manual queries. These are not queries that the testing library exposes for itself. It's pretty much the queries from um, the DOM API. So it's a query selected API from DOM API. So instead of leveraging a query, you access directly the, the component, the component, the container where you handle your components and you query for a specific selector. So the thing is, and I like to say, and I try to emphasize this a lot in my talk is you should only need this like 0.0001% of the times. I only had to use it once and it was because we were using a, a package of, which was a library that we couldn't control and there was no actual way to query for anything that all the other three queries had. So we had to reserve to manual queries because yeah, once again, this is the escape patch. So with this, you can start querying for the same way that we did with find. And yeah, it's it. we need to be careful about that. Another thing that you can use here and that the, the testing library also offers you, it allows you to create your own queries. It has an API, which is called Build Queries, if I'm not wrong, and it allows you to create your custom queries that you can use to your fullest. For instances, I remember that I only used it once and throughout the project and we used it over a year because we wanted to query for our translation, I18-18N query translation text. So we wanted to make sure that if the key we added was being rendered properly on the UI and we ended up building this sort of custom queries. One thing that whenever time I speak about this, I like to say to people is be careful because once again, you can find yourself resorting to implementation details. And if you choose to follow the way of building these queries, you do it in a way that you write it as closest to the user experience of, as possible. So probably nowadays I wouldn't build these custom queries because we ended up querying for the the translation key instead of like, for instance, changing our browser language and checking if in English everything was showing up properly or in Portuguese it was always showing properly. So I wouldn't do it this way right now, but yeah, that's how we learn. I, I like that you described it as an escape hatch. Like it's, it's something to reach for under extraordinary circumstances, like you don't have access to the library and you still want to be able to test it somehow, that makes total sense. I've definitely run into the foot gun before of, and this wasn't in React testing library, but Cypress, which I think has a similar API of selecting by classes. And that's of course an implementation detail. If you think about like using classes to render different CSS. And so if you decide that the components should look a little bit different, it might have different classes. But it's still a button, so you know, be targeting the button, or like you had mentioned before, accessible selector. So it's really good to keep in mind. I'll think of it in the future as an escape hatch as well. And if I may add something there, you spoke about Cypress. You can use the Cypress testing library as well. So it's the testing library has a variant which is called the Cypress testing library, which you can integrate with Cypress, and it allows you to query for stuff and interact for stuff the testing library way in Cypress. So if you haven't tried it out, it's really, really cool as well. Oh, interesting. No, I had not heard of that one. I'm going to have to check that out after this. So thanks for the tip. So it sounds like so far everything's mostly fine and dandy with React testing library, but were there any kind of difficulties that you ran into? I mean, besides having to fix all your tests, but were there mistakes that you encountered and kind of good rules of thumb or learnings for using React testing library? Yeah, definitely. Like over four years of using it, I can definitely say that <laughs> there were done a lot, a lot of mistakes and just not by me, by coworkers. And this is one of the closing parts I like to have in the talk, which is called the common mistakes area, where I pretty much did a mental 
<laughs> search exercise to try to remember all of the, the common mistakes that we were doing throughout the years. Probably the biggest one, and that's why I start with the using act mistake. So this is a fun one, and it's one of probably, I think, one of the things that Kent gets bothered a lot. I had opportunity about chatting with Kent about this, and it's a funny thing because for those of you who are not aware what act is, Act is a fun is an util that React exposes. So when you're testing, there are things that are called units of interaction with the user interface. So this can be things like rendering, firing some events, changing some inputs, whatever. So these are called units of interaction with the user interface. Act is pretty much an util that allows you to wrap this function. So imagine that you're rendering a component, allows you to wrap rendering to make sure that it's all flushed to the UI before your test continues. And one of the things there's an issue, but I'll try to leave that to the end because that's the part I like to close cl close the talk with and the, every discussion is. There's an issue called something not being wrapped with Act. Once again, I'll try to leave that part to the end, but it pretty much tells you, hey, you're doing a unit of interaction with user interface, you have to wrap it with Act. And because of that, every time I changed companies and people were using React as in library, that's the first tip I like to give to everyone if you like to get a better onboarding experience, look at the test first because it allows you to get the entire view and it's a quick win that you can get at the beginning. But I was looking at the test and act, 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 act everywhere. And when I start seeing this, I've started having like nervous fidgeting and I start being, ah, you don't need this here. Why, you might ask. First things first, because the React testing library wraps everything that you need, that everything that will have a unit of interaction with the UI with Act by itself. So rendering is wrapped by Act, firing events is wrapped by Act. So you don't need to use it. Like I said, and I remember now at CTGS putting really emphasis on that. And at the end of the talk, people coming out to me like, oh, I didn't know we didn't have to use Act. I'm just going to open a pull request on my uh, tests to remove these things. Because... That's the thing, you don't need it. You might think you need it because of that other issue that I was talking about, but I'll say it right now as well. The thing is with that issue is when you're testing stuff and there might show up this issue in your console where it says an update to your user interface. Let me see if I remember the name, but just to quote it right here, yeah. an update to your component inside of a test was not wrapped in Act. And this might think that you have to wrap everything with Act. So let's, for instance, pick a small example that hopefully I can explain through speaking. Imagine that you have a component that does some data fetching. So the first thing that this component does is when it renders a button, and when you click on that button, it will do the following. Trigger a data fetch request. But before triggering a data fetch request, it has a state that it's called is loading. And before it sets stating state is loading as true. So to show a loading spinner. And after the data fetching ends, or if there's an error, it will set loading as false. And once you get your data, it renders the data. The way that you would probably write this test would to be, okay, so you render your component, you click on the button, and you wait for the data to show up on the UI. Or you wait for instances for your function to be called if you are making sure that you are mocking some data and you are asserting for that. If you do the test this way, once you run it, you'll have an update to your component it was not wrapped in Act. And the thing that people start doing is, okay, I have to put Act everywhere. Or they're going to do a couple of other mistakes that I've presented on this presentation. For instance, there's an util called wait for that it allows you to loop the code inside of it until the assertion validates or 
people will resort to that and just pretty much put an empty callback. This seems like such a weird thing, but I've seen this a lot because for some of my coworkers at the time, it made the error disappear or it was that, it was the act or they were just waiting for stuff that didn't need to be waited for. And because people don't know how to interpret this, this warning. React was not fully explicit at the time. Now it's better. Now, since React 17, I might be wrong. And it was from a jest update as well. It started telling you exactly the line where the state update is happening so that you um, can fix the issue. But at the time, we didn't know it and we didn't know how to fix this. And this is the main takeaway I like people to take home after learning about hacked and about this warning is this warning is there to tell you that you're not testing everything. So this warning is only there to tell you, hey, you did this test, but there is something happening in your test in this specific scenario that you're doing that you're not thinking about. And in specifically on this scenario that I was talking about, this component that I tried to give an overview, we were not checking about the loaders. So we were setting the loader is true. We were doing our data fetching. We were getting our data and then our loader was being put down as false. So it was disappearing. And this caused the state update, the update happening to the UI that we were not expecting. So this warning was fairly easy to resolve pretty much by just adding an assertion, first things first, to check if the loader doesn't appear on the UI anymore, or if we use a synchronous routine, which is called wait for element to be removed, where we can wait for something as well to disappear. So this warning there, and this is the mind process and the process that I like everyone to have is, if you see this warning, you're not testing everything in that scenario that you're thinking about. And this is React's ways of telling you, hey, look, you're forgetting something. Just test the scenario. Now it gives you a bit better overview, but in previous versions of React and previous versions of Jest, it didn't pick up on this. So if you try to get around that warning just by wrapping it in Act, you're actually missing out on code coverage, is that the case? Or on testing coverage, because the warning goes away, but you're still not testing the interaction that updated the component that it was complaining about? Yeah, exactly. So you're pretty much missing on something that you should have tested and you didn't. So this is why I like to say this is a React way of trying to be your friend and telling you, hey, look, you're not testing everything. You need to focus on this scenario as well. The thing is, in previous versions, it didn't tell you which was the scenario, which now hopefully it already does in some, but considering most of us are still using earlier versions or don't fully upgrade everything, it might take a couple of years or a couple of months before starting having this heads up from React. Got it. Yeah, that's a, a very helpful one. And it, it sounds like a common thing that people run into based on everyone coming up to you after your talk and uh, having that mind blown moment of revelation. Yeah, we appreciate it. And before we wrap, is there anywhere you'd like people to find you online, blog or website or anything? Yeah, definitely. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, pretty much at the handle Daniel JC Afonso. I think I have this handle everywhere online. So hopefully uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, GitHub. I also have my blog, which is the same thing.com, DanielJCAfonso.com. So yeah, that's pretty much the place where people can find me or find me at events when I'm walking around or if speaking. I really like meeting people in person. So really try to find me there if you see me. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. This was super informative. And uh, yeah, we appreciate your insights into testing. I appreciate joining. Thank you so much for the invite. We appreciate it.